Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this Fringe event, What Can We Learn From The Use Of Data During The Pandemic, hosted by the Institute for Government and kindly supported by Facebook. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, the UK's leading non-partisan think tank working to make government more effective. It's been a busy few years, and um, <laughs> it's wonderful to welcome so many of you in person to today's event. Um, I hope you're enjoying conference so far. There's something reassuring about the resolutely beige food, but I can assure you that the discussion will be anything but resolutely beige this afternoon. <laughs> um, some housekeeping before we get underway. This is a public event. We are on the record, so anything you do say will be held against you. Uh, there will be an audio recording on the website later. If you're on social media, you can use hashtag IFGLab21 or hashtag Lab21. We'll also be live tweeting from at IFGEvents. And as well as tweeting, one of my IFG colleagues will be taking some photographs, so do tell them if you don't want to be in shot. There's no fire drill planned, so if you do hear a fire alarm, um, do follow the hotel staff and their instructions. That's something you don't get with virtual meetings. So what can we learn from the use of data during the pandemic? Whether it's been using data to track the spread of coronavirus or monitor the impact on our travel patterns or our economy, whether it was the contact tracing app, the A-level algorithm fiasco or vaccine passports, whether it's been and our increased reliance on social media and having to use digital platforms for work and having to track and combat misinformation, data has been at the heart of the coronavirus pandemic. Government, both local and central, the private sector, charities, the voluntary sector, civil society, and all of us, I think we're already uh, doing more and more with data. The last 18 months have accelerated that and actually made all of those different actors think about how they can work better together when it comes to data. The government itself is doing an awful lot at the moment. Strategies and consultations, the national data strategy, the AI strategy, the digital strategy, the online harms or online safety bill, all of these things um, are sort of in the public ether at the moment. So there's a lot going on, which makes this a perfect time to be asking questions such as, what lessons can we learn from the use of data during the pandemic? What are the challenges and the risks? What are the benefits and the opportunities? And what does this all mean for citizens? Huge questions. It's a good job that we've got a fantastic panel here today to answer some of those and more. First, we'll be hearing from Darren Jones, Member of Parliament for Bristol North West since 2017, Chair of the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Select Committee and a former member of the Science and Technology Select Committee. Before entering Parliament, uh, Darren was a practising solicitor who specialised in technology law and he's also the Chair of Labour Digital. Once we've heard from Darren, we'll hear from Jen Maitland-Hudson. She's the deputy CEO of the social investment business, which helps organisations become sustainable and resilient in order to improve people's lives. Jen has spent the last 10 years working on making better use of data and information in sort of social impact programmes, including at Power to Change, the Social Impact Lab, Oscar, the U at the Young Foundation, and Glue, which works with young people excluded from school. After Jen, we'll hear from Richard Early. He's public policy manager at our sponsors today, Facebook, and he's been leading the work with the UK government and civil society on pandemic-related issues, including misinformation, disinformation, and public health. Before that, he spent 10 years in the civil service, including at Cabinet Office, Department for Exiting the European Union, and the Department for International Development. And last but not least, 
we'll be hearing from Olivier Terreau, who is the Head of Research and Development at the Open Data Institute, which works with companies and governments to build open, trustworthy data ecosystems and lead to better decision-making with data. Before joining the ODI, Olivier did all sorts of really interesting things, including managing open source tools and services at W3C, founding a non-profit uh, democratizing art and design online, um, and also led BBC R&D's work on content discovery. Um, I should say full disclosure, I'm also a special advisor at the ODI. So I'm gonna ask each of our speakers to talk on the subject for about five minutes, and we'll then have some discussion between the panel. Pretty quickly as well, we'll come out to you, the audience, for questions, so do start thinking about those now, and we'll be aiming to finish at around quarter past one. So without further ado, Darren. Well, thank you, um, and good, are we in the afternoon now? Yeah, good afternoon uh, to all of you. I'm conscious that we're forming a bit of a kind of tech club between some members of the audience and this panel, so I can't say the same joke at the beginning of each fringe, which is uh, very unfortunate, but that got a laugh, so there we are, we're in, we're in business. Now, I'm gonna dive straight into uh, the detail, and uh, you'll all be familiar with a lot of this, but let me end in thinking about what Parliament should be doing in response. During the pandemic, there was a mass adoption uh, of technology and innovation in the use of data across government, uh, both in Whitehall and in local government. Um, and in many ways, that's great, because it's just far too slow uh, normally. I can't tell you how many exciting conversations I've had with ministers about when they're going to get money from the Treasury to do a server update program uh, in Whitehall. And ministers kind of look at me and say, why on earth are you talking about servers? Um, you know, these are the kind of important but dry issues that government needs to get right if they're going to optimize the use of data and tech across uh, uh, Whitehall. But um, there's a mixture, I think, in Whitehall between kind of tech optimism and tech defeatism. And it's the clash of those two titans that often resolve uh, result in hopefully some good output. I think it was the Dominic Cummings whiteboard at the start of the COVID pandemic where somebody, maybe he wrote an app on the whiteboard and put a big circle around it. <laughs> and they thought this will be fine because we'll just build an app uh, and everything will be, be fine. And it was, as we all know, the way that the government tried to procure uh, an app-based technology, the relationship it had with some of the tech companies, some of the early decisions it wanted to take, uh, not in collaboration with other countries uh, around the world, uh, and that whole kind of procurement piece kind of all fell down, really, and there were lots of big problems, uh, which I'm sure you all, all, all read about. There were some good examples. I think the way the government responded to anti-vax disinformation and misinformation was quite good, and the way they brought officials together across departments to think about how they tackle that in partnership with some of the platforms. Um, and, uh, of course, there's been some projects that have started but not quite finished, and I suppose the challenge in talking about data is you can talk about anything in Whitehall. I've already talked about public health and disinformation. There's a lot of work going on in the national security space, which I work in as well. We apparently now have a situation room uh, in Whitehall. Um, I think maybe the prime minister was just jealous that the president of the US had a sit room and we, we didn't. I, the brown panel room in the cabinet office is a bit dry, I think, in comparison. So we now have TV screens. Um, and the idea is that data will flow into those TV screens and give ministers command of the information as they're making decisions. But the reality is we don't really know what data exists, whether it can flow properly, whether it can actually be assimilated in a way which makes ministers take informed decisions as opposed to just seeing a kind of matrix level of data on maybe 10 TV screens or however many are in the room. So there's work uh, to be done. Um, as was mentioned at the beginning, government has a whole host of policies out at the moment. Uh, one of them, which I think is really interesting, is looking at the way in which government uses uh, data. And this isn't actually just limited to DCMS. 
the Home Office, for example, have included provisions in that data strategy, thinking about the regulation of uh, facial recognition technologies, for example, where ministers have taken a, a tech-neutral view but wanted to focus instead on data. And I think it's good to be having those conversations, and we need to ensure that everyone's kind of feeding in and informing those um, uh, processes. One example which I really liked, and maybe this was just very good lobbying um, uh, or good reporting, was the relationship with Palantir, the MOD, and the Department for Health around optimizing the delivery of vaccines when they could only be out of the fridge for so long. Uh, I think this is a good example about how private sector and two departments, which don't often work together in Whitehall, were able to come together and build what was actually quite a sophisticated and successful um, system to help ministers and officials kind of deliver public policy priorities. Now, of course, the press and some journalists go, oh, Palantir, that's one of the bad ones, right? If you're in the room, sorry, I was reporting what was in the papers. And everyone gets a bit nervous and they say, well, who's getting the data and how much money are they being paid? And, uh, you know, what are they going to do with it afterwards and all that type of stuff? And what, what I think that shows is that both in Whitehall, especially in Parliament, and I think in the public, we still don't really have uh, a kind of agreed understanding about what we're comfortable with, what should be open data that's available for people to use irrespective of um, their particular role in society in the national security space, whether everything really is always secret uh, or whether it can actually be circulated a bit more freely uh, between departments. And what are the frameworks, the governance, the checkpoints, the rights of redress, especially around, uh, around using third-party contractors working with the state to ensure that basic principles are being protected when we're using data, whether it's personal data or whether it's not personal data. And the reason I say that is because um, there's an increasing number of MPs who are kind of active and engaged on tech and data issues now. It, it never used to be like that. But there's still a kind of often a knee-jerk reaction to be on the pessimistic side, a concern that things are being done badly, that it's a waste of taxpayers' money, that it's an invasion of our privacy. Um, important debates about what the state holds and how it uses it and how that flows to other organisations. And my concern is, is until we grasp that nettle, and have a proper conversation about it and think from a parliamentary perspective, how are we going to make this work in the context of an absolute imperative around modernising our public services and the effectiveness of government operations? Um, I think we're just going to constantly be between those two times of tech optimism and tech defeatism and not actually really make the progress that we need to make. One of the things that keeps me awake at night is at the cost of our public services, our ageing society and our declining tax revenues over the next few decades. Our public services, as they are today, uh, can't be funded sustainably. They can't. So the question is, what do you do about that? You either cut back on public service delivery, which no one's going to vote for. Uh, you either try to increase your tax income, and I'd like a growing economy that does that, but now we've left the European Union, that's going to be much harder. Uh, or you say, we're actually going to invest and modernise the delivery of our public services to be more productive, to be more citizen or customer-focused, to use a private sector language, so that services work for people in the way they want it to work for them, and in doing so, reduce the cost of running very traditional uh, kind of post-war public services. But we can only do that if we get the fundamentals right. That's why this whole debate is so crucial, I think, not just in the specific examples of the pandemic, but to the future of how government is run, how public services are delivered in our country. And I hope uh, that we won't just all, I say we as in politicians, we won't just all moan about when things have gone wrong, because actually things are going wrong sometimes is a good thing because you can learn from them. But we actually say, let's have a proper discussion about how we get the principles in place, the transparency and accountability in place, so that we can make the most of these opportunities in the future. Thanks. Thank you very much, Darren. Jen. 
Um, so I'm going to talk about a couple of much smaller things, kind of practical applications of data that we we put into place during the pandemic and that we were able to do. Um, so one of the things that we one of the things we have struggled with in the social economy um, might actually be helpful for those of you not familiar with the social investment business to say a little bit about who we are um, and the kind of data we work with. So SIB is a is a social investor primarily. So we we were founded with the first social investment funds in the early noughties, pre big society capital. There was a time pre big society capital. Um, and so we've run uh, big investment funds on behalf of government. That's what we've done. Um, the kinds of investments that we have tended to make have been in charities and social enterprises, and they are long, flexible, very patient um, loans. So the, the average loan length for a SIB loan is about 15 years at the moment. So they're very different to kind of conventional um, loans out there in the market otherwise. Um, so we have quite a good data set of, of these, these organizations that we've been working with for a long time. Um, and they are in the social economy, so typically they are, in fact, delivering public services, but they're, they're usually delivering public services as um, an enriched form of public service delivery through some kind of commissioning or contracting, um, which is something we're also interested in as well. So that's that's kind of our, our own internal data sources, um, so a, lot, a lot of those social investees, and then we are also a grant maker, and we typically make grants alongside partners, so we, we make grants on, on behalf of with a grant administrator on behalf of, of foundations. Um, and so that gives us also access to a data set of applicants to grant funds. Um, one of the things that anyone who knows about social economy will know a little bit, I would imagine, is that there's very little good data in the UK about the social economy. We really know markedly little um, about what the makeup of, of those, of those organisations is and how they operate in local places. And so we have been kind of trying to tackle both ends of that. So we've been trying to understand a little bit better what the makeup of the social economy is. What do those organisations do? What do they look like? What are their business models? Where does their revenue come from? What kind of capacity building do they need? And on the other hand, we're also trying to understand local places. So we need to know a little bit about what those the places in which those organisations work really look like. And that kind of responds to the point that there is an enormous policy, that this is a policy pressure, but it's also a real-life problem that we have in the delivery of public services and there is this move towards more community-based public service delivery i think it's probably cross-party it feels like a kind of just a strong belief that those those services should be closer to people in the communities that they live in but it's actually quite hard to do that at the moment the social economy is not well set up to take on more of that contracting as things stand and equally commissioning doesn't look right either so um that that's another kind of part of the part of the problem and then we don't really necessarily un understand the economies particularly well so we did two big things as part of that, for us, big things. One is very small data, one is slightly bigger data. Um, but for us, these were kind of quite transformational things. So one thing that we were able to push through with the pandemic, because the sense of urgency and the kind of, we were living in history and saying so we were able to push some stuff through, was that we were able to standardize our data collection across all of our programs um, over the last two years. And that sounds like a really little thing, but it was huge for us. It meant that we were actually able to compare grant funds of, you know, £5,000 up to social investment of, say, £1.5 and to try and understand what was going on between those different organisations. And as part of that, one of the things that we did right at the start of the pandemic, so, you know, back in kind of February, March time, was that we introduced completely consistent uh, data collection around diversity. So we had some statistics on, on ethnicity, on race, on disability, on um, leadership by women, various things like that. And we were able to collect that data throughout the pandemic. And uh, I think one of the big kind of data findings or sort of truths that came out of the, of the pandemic is that, you know, inequality is a thing. And, um, and we found that 
really clearly. So we were able, for the first time with our data set, so we anecdotally had a sense that maybe we weren't distributing funding in as equitable a way as we might have liked, but we weren't really able to pinpoint it and say where that was true and where it wasn't. And now we are able to do that. We have a public data set that we, we it's transparently, it's open data, it's out there, you can look at it. Um, and it shows that there are, that consistently across pretty much every single fund, we're just really bad at reaching um, every single part of the, of the UK. So there's geographical inequality in there, but there's particularly inequality on black, Asian, minority, ethnic leadership. We've just been really bad at reaching those organizations. And so having that data has enabled us to really understand why, and that's been really significant. Um, and I think it's going to continue to be significant in the recovery from the pandemic because we can start to target some of our funds and to think, and we are doing that. So we've not only been able to collect the data, understand what it tell us, tells us, but we've been able to act on it. And that's been, that's been a huge thing. Um, the other thing that we did is that the other answer is that local economic understanding. And we have been working with there with a bigger data set. So we have access to some proprietary data which uses credit, debit cards, um, data, and uh, standard models, and those kinds of things. So banking data covers about 25% of, of the UK. Not so good in Northern Ireland, actually, realistically. It's more like England, Wales, and Scotland. Um, and that allows us to map uh, the economic flows within local communities, so down to MSOA level for the data mined in Monster. So we can get quite small locality data. Um, and that is, so that for us is a, a big data-y thing. So we're, we're a relatively small social um, organization, but we're, at the moment, we're analyzing now sort of up to about 60 million rows of data. So that's, that's big for us, that's a big, big step. And we've been publishing that data through the pandemic, we published it alongside Tortoise Media, which some of you may know, but we are now moving to publishing that with the Financial Times. So that was a, a kind of big step for us to be able to say, this is what's happening in local economies. Because it's also very retail-focused data, it really did enable us to see the differences in the recession effects of the pandemic and to track places that were particularly suffering. So if you can put those two things together, which we now can, we have an understanding of social economy organizations that are applying to us for, for funding and support, and we have an understanding of the places that they are applying from, that enables us to make better use of the you know, scarce amount of funding that we actually have. And that feels like a, a big kind of significant thing that we've been able to do. Um, but just because the public services thing came up, the other kind of really nice, this is a, a tiny piece of data really, but it has felt like it's unlocked a huge amount, is that one of the things that we, we were trying to look at was to understand why commissioning is such a, a problem, particularly for small organizations. Why is it that it has such a, a really significant impact? What's the problem? Um, particularly when we have this myth in the social economy that uh, social organizations can grow just like the private sector. They have, if they have the right support, the right leadership, you know, we can create these, these small local organizations and they will grow and deliver public services and then they just don't. There's no, there's no evidence out there that they successfully do this at all. There's some exceptions, but generally speaking, it doesn't happen. And so one of the analyses that we did with Spend Network was to just look at the size of contracts. And it's, it's just, it does a U-shaped distribution. <laughs> there's, there's small single-year contracts and then there's big multi-year contracts and there's nothing in between. So there's no phasing of contracts. Um, commissioning out there. So it's really hard. If you're a small local organization setting up to, to enrich public service delivery in your local area, which really needs it, you can't phase your growth. You can stay little and have a few little contracts, or you suddenly have to become a multi-million turnover organization to access the big contracts. Like if that's the thing that, that if we could tackle that, if we could tackle just some phasing of that contracting, we would see enormous growth in the social economy in that view. And that's just one kind of tiny little bit of data. 
Um, so for me, that kind of big learning is can we can we collect better, but also can we apply these analyses and actually start unlocking some of the problems and being more efficient. Fantastic. <clears throat> Thanks, Jen. Richard. Thanks very much, and hello, everyone. I'm Richard from Facebook. So at the start of the pandemic, like many businesses that have access to a large amount of data, at Facebook, we started to think about how could we effectively put that data to good use to support governments and health authorities with their attempts to tackle the coronavirus pandemic. And we also thought about how we can do that in a way that preserves and protects the privacy and the rights of those people who the data belongs to. Um, it was quite a, you used a, a phrase, a sense of urgency at the time. There really was quite a sense of urgency in the early days of the pandemic. And there was quite a lot of encouragement from the government to look at data protection law and, and identify areas where there was flexibility to be able to support governments in public health emergencies. And so we, uh, we worked very closely with the UK government, with privacy and, and health experts all around the world on a number of different approaches. Um, and in April of this year, we published a paper called A Retrospective, Protecting Privacy in Our COVID-19 Initiatives. I don't have any hard copies of it to give out to you, I'm afraid, um, but if you Google Facebook COVID data paper, it'll come up, or please do grab me and I'll point you where to find it. But that paper talks through a couple of case studies of how we tried to approach this challenge and then draws a couple of uh, key lessons that I thought I'd share briefly today. Um, the lessons, just to you know, spoil, the, spoil the ending for you, that we took home were Firstly, that companies or bodies that are trying to get involved in tackling these problems should play to their strengths and look for things they already do well. Secondly, that they should take their cues and be led by experts, particularly the public health community in the case of COVID, who often will certainly know a lot better than, than we do how to use the data we have. And thirdly, to make sure you design privacy into any approaches you take right from the start. So a couple of examples. So the first one is Facebook has a program which is called Data for Good. And this is um, uh, a program we've had for several years that looks at how to, uh, in broad terms, support NGOs, charities, um, development authorities in meeting their social, social aims uh, with the use of the data that we hold. This kicked off, I think, in about 2016 when we were working with the UN's Office on the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs uh, to help them uh, better support the planning and delivery of, of humanitarian aid efforts in, in parts of the global south. And it's a collection of data sorts that fall into two categories, really. One is public data, which we make available to anyone. That's where the data that we're providing is largely based on publicly available information, like satellite imagery. And the other is more private data sets that we only share with NGO partners, verified authorities under um, particular um, data use agreements. Um, the the way it works is we combine some of that publicly available data with some of the data that, uh, in most, most of the cases for the, for the, for the disease prevention pro, uh, maps, are provided to us by some of our users about their location. So this enables us to build maps that show how people are moving around the country, commuting patterns, how people respond to natural disasters, where they move during those sorts of events. Um, and this would have been quite useful before the pandemic in, in supporting some of these humanitarian efforts. What we did during COVID was really tremendously scale up the number of partners we worked with, far beyond the Global South into many countries in the North as well. We worked with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine here in the UK, among others, um, and try to use the, the, the information that we were able to glean from this data to predict the spread of the disease, or rather to give health authorities and health researchers the ability to analyze what had happened so far and predict what might happen in the future. 
Um, that information was used by quite a number of governments, actually, to help them plan the distribution and location of their vaccine centers, for example, to understand uh, where you should place vaccine distribution centers in order to make it as efficient as possible to be able to roll vaccines out. A second example is what another tool we offer called CrowdTangle. And this was a, it's a social listening tool. So it's essentially a way of monitoring or seeing the public, top performing public posts across a number of platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and also Reddit. So just public conversations in those spaces. It had initially been developed for the journalism, for the publishing industry to help them understand social, social trends and use that to build stories. Um, and in the course of COVID, we expanded the number of partners that we provided access to that tool to include, again, a number of health authorities, um, particularly those who were interested in understanding um, the public's understanding about COVID, about symptoms, and trying to tackle some of those misconceptions and misinformation that, that Darren mentioned. As part of this, we worked with, um, as you also mentioned, that the UK government's uh, online or counter-online disinformation unit to help them have access to boards where they could see what were the top performing posts or top performing trends and results in these public spaces of Facebook and Instagram and Reddit to understand what questions people were asking and what kind of information that might imply they should be putting out. Uh, an, an incident that really sticks in my mind is that around the time the vaccine rollout began in December and January, a question that we, we saw quite quickly that people were asking was, is the vaccine halal? And many, uh, many people of the Muslim faith were worried about whether the vaccine was, was halal and could be taken by them. So we were able to very quickly advise, or the government were able to advise MHRA to put out statements to confirm that all the vaccines are halal, and that helped, we believe, to, to, to assure to uptake of vaccines in that community. And the last thing I'll talk about before I finish is um, another, going back to my point about leaning into what we're good at, something else we, we did a lot of work on during the pandemic and still do is survey data. So partnering with organizations that are asking or trying to, again, develop their understanding of people's knowledge about COVID or people's symptoms of COVID to help predict and understand the spread of the, spread of the disease. This was, there's two main um, surveys that we ran. One was the preventative health survey, which was asking people questions about what steps they were taking to protect themselves from COVID, what hand washing, wearing masks, social distancing, et cetera. And then the second one was around um, COVID trends. And so asking people about their understanding, their attitudes towards vaccination, their uh, thoughts about the effectiveness of different measures and, and their belief of them. We work with Public Health England also on a series of testing campaigns, essentially to test different messages with parts of the public to see which messages were more effective at increasing people's likelihood of taking up the vaccine. And one study that we uh, published, which is really interesting, is that we found that in the US and the UK, where the study was conducted, social norming messages, so telling people what percentage of their community or their country are intending to take the vaccine or, or have taken the vaccine, on average could increase by 5% the percentage of people who would say that they would then take the vaccine. So just being aware of what the situation is really in your own community, as opposed to what you might read, can, can really make a big difference. Um, one thing to touch on briefly, things, something we didn't do, was get involved in the app uh, location-based contact tracing technology work um, for a number of reasons, but I think the main one is that we just didn't have appropriate data that would really help that situation. So again, learning there about how to play to our strengths. So yeah, playing to our strengths, um, I talked about consulting with experts. I think that, it's really important to remember that companies like Facebook are not the experts on these sorts of issues. What we can do is provide um, our partners with data, with information that, that we have, and then really rely on them to draw the conclusions that governments and health authorities need to be able to take action on those conclusions. Um, and then the last one I mentioned, designing with privacy in mind. I'll, I'll pause here because I can talk a lot about our approach to making sure we design these approaches with privacy in mind, but perhaps we can come back to that in the questions. Fantastic, thank you very much, Richard. Olivier. Thank you, Gavin. 
in order to, to answer the question of what we've learned uh, from this data use and collection and sharing in the pandemic, I wanted to start by painting a picture of what the data ecosystem was before the pandemic. So place yourselves in, I don't know, December 2019. And it's interesting, we've got, we've got representatives of the, the you know, public sector and private sector and civil society here. And I'm going to basically group those in, in, in rough groups. And you basically, in 2019, had a public sector who was opening some data because, you know, by law, they have to, depending on where, but in the UK and in most places, you've got some open data, and making pious noises about being data-driven, while kind of ignoring the fact that the data that was supposed to drive policies or services was not, as Darren was saying, always of the right quality, not the right frequency, but still, we're going to be data-driven, and all will be fine. And talking privately with, with people in government, not in the UK, uh, I, I heard the term of open data hangover, the notion that you know there was a lot of promise in, in, in data flows, but really hadn't been uh, realized. On the other end, we had the private sector, where with a few uh, uh, exceptions, data was seen as a, an asset to be bought and sold, or at best to be used to optimize products and services and businesses, but not as something to be shared, not as something that others might want to use. And in the middle, we had you know, the public and civil society that was, on the one hand, despairing about data access and, and you know, fighting with uh, public authorities through, through FOIs and receiving uh, badly formatted PDFs uh, whenever, whenever they, at best, they got, the, they got the data, not necessarily finding the data that was made open uh, fit for purpose. And generally, and that's something I want to stress, uh, being very, very distrustful of anything that was about collection and use of data. Um, Cambridge Analytica and other uh, scandals m meant that the, the public trust in the collection and use of data was really, really low. Uh, we surveyed in 2018 and 2019 the general public across Europe and found that the levels of trust in the ethical use of data uh, was at best for organizations like the NHS around 30-40%, likewise for, for, for governments. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry to say, for uh, let's say uh, social media companies, the, the, the levels of trust were around, I think, 5%. And then the pandemic, ha pandemic happened and everything changed. And I know this is trite, I know this is, uh, this is a, 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 a cliche and a truism, but everything did change. And looking at the flows of data, looking at that notion that data isn't just something to be hoarded or something to be feared, but something to be used to make better decisions. And in order to do that, we need to get the data to people who need it in ways that are safe for people who are represented in the data or for people who are going to be affected by this use of data. And then we had like massive, massive changes. The, um, the civil society and people more generally found themselves actually being the holders of the data. We had uh, organizations, and we, we worked with an organization called Track Together, who were one of the first organizations creating uh, symptom trackers because sometimes the government wasn't fast enough, or sometimes that was actually um, encouraged. Uh, and those um, kind of uh, civil society uh, grassroots uh, movements that started collecting data about the pandemic were super useful. And then the government ended up being not just a publisher of data, but actually a convener of organizations that had been uh, collecting data. So, a reversal of roles there. Likewise, the, the, the private sector, which kind of had not grasped or not wanted to, to engage with that notion of data sharing and data flows, 
I, I, with the exception of you know buying and selling and, 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 and collecting data, started basically going to people like us at the ODI and going, look, we've got data that we think is really going to be useful to understand this pandemic, to, to, to react to this. Can you help us make it available? Can you help us make it available to people who need it? And then we ended up with uh, initiatives like the, the, the Merchant Network, which uh, was started, in, in, among others, by Rolls-Royce, or indeed uh, organizations uh, in the private sector going to government saying, we've got data that, that you need. So you know, Facebook was, was one of them. Uh, I can think of, for instance, how MasterCard went to the GLA and went, we've got data about movement and we've got data about uh, how people are uh, buying and selling. We can give access to, to it um, in uh, anonymized form, in aggregated form, so that you can understand how the pandemic is and the lockdowns are affecting uh, economic activity and therefore understand this thing which is literally happening in real time. And that was also another big change. A lot of the, the flows of data were happening at much, much slower speed. Think, you know, how the ONS uh, publishes data on a about the economy on a quarterly basis. Quarterly basis wasn't good enough. We needed uh, uh, data about the economy, data about public health, not in a quarterly or yearly uh, uh, frequency, but daily. We needed those quickly. And then we ended up noticing that, well, different actors had different sources of data. It would be really useful to aggregate that and put that together. But then we didn't have the infrastructure. We didn't have the, the pipelines. We didn't have the standards. Uh, and I know standards is not the, the sexiest thing. I, I've worked in standards for 20 years. I, I can tell you that. But, but all of a sudden, standards were sexy because, wait a minute, we need interoperability between this. Uh, I remember early in the pandemic talking to, to journalists saying that they were pulling their hair, trying to get together data from all the countries uh, about cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, and figuring out that the data they were finding at best was usable, but there was no uh, agreement on what constituted a case. We still don't really agree internationally on what constitutes a, a COVID death. De and definitions matter. If you want to be able to make informed decisions, you need to have consistency, quality, and, uh, and timeliness in the data. And we've seen that when that is not done right, as we've seen, uh, for instance, and I, I, I don't mean to pick on anyone, this is an example that keeps coming up and, and that is familiar to people. The uh, A-levels uh, issue was one where data was collected for a specific purpose, but had the, um, the, the quality, the, uh, the fitness for a purpose, and especially the ethical use and the engagement with people affected with misuse of data hadn't been done properly. And we ended up with a system that wasn't fit for purpose and that ended up with a massive scandal. So my, what I end up with is that's a big shift, shift in roles, shift in technology, shift in need and understanding of the need for this infrastructure. And I will leave you all with a question. Is that shift in trust, in, 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 uh, in infrastructure, in, in the roles around data, is that a permanent thing or is that going to go back to distrust in data collection and use from the public, in uh, the government basically coming back to publishing some of the data for transparency but not really engaging with this rich ecosystem of the, the, civil, the civil society and the private sector? Or is this something that's going to need to be made more permanent through investment and, and, and hard work? 
Thank you very much, Olivier, for fascinating perspectives on how the world has changed over the last 18 months and a few valiant attempts to make data standards sexy. <laughs> so, um, I suspect you're all burning with questions, actually, based on all of that. So I am going to go to, um, to you for, for questions. Um, just to say, I'll be taking them in clusters of three. They are on the record. Do remember that. Um, do tell us who you are, if you feel comfortable to do so. Keep them short so we can get in as many as possible. And one of my colleagues will be roving around the room with a microphone. There's Penny at the back with the mic. So do wait for Penny to come to you and make sure you're not on mute. So who would like to ask a question? We've got the lady at the back, uh, the gentleman in the white shirt at the front, and the gentleman in the blue shirt at the front as well. Uh, thanks very much. That doesn't sound like mute. Um, my name's Caitlin, and I'm from UCAS. Um, so uh, lots of you probably know us as the national provider of um, post-secondary uh, admission service. We help 700,000 students every year apply to higher education in the UK. Um, and we are actually an independent charity, although lots of people don't realise that's the case. Um, this year, for the first time, uh, we were able to uh, share individual level free school meal data with universities as part of the application process. This is something we've been working on for a long time. Universities have been asking for it for a long time. Um, and we know, for example, there are students who've started or are about to start studying at uh, top universities in the UK. Uh, and the, the universities have told us that, that having that free school meal data impacted whether or not they, they extended their offer to that student. So it's, it's been a real breakthrough for us. Um, but in and of itself, had had nothing necessarily to do with the pandemic. Um, and I think it kind of speaks to some of what you've all been saying around that, that shift towards comfort with, with data sharing, particularly when there's a you know a sort of socially uh, just um, outcome at the end of it. So, so my question is, are there any other examples from, you know, perhaps beyond the, the pandemic itself where that shift in tone and, and attitude has resulted in these kind of changes? And, and more specifically, how can we ensure that those wins continue and aren't just uh, the result of a kind of emergency mindset? How can we kind of take that approach forward uh, beyond uh, the pandemic? Fantastic question. Thank you. And then down at the front. Uh, hi, I'm Tom McGraw from Good Things Foundation. Uh, we're a digital inclusion charity working with over 2,000 hyper-local community partners to provide basic digital skills, get people online, and get them motivated about being online. Um, so from my perspective, one of the big gaps in data is on people who are digitally excluded, which is obvious given the area I work in. Um, but we need that data in order to sort of know how to include them and know who we're not reaching uh, as an organization um, and improve the data we collect in other areas as well. Um, so we know who we currently support. We do regular surveys with uh, our community partners uh, and uh, there's data from like Lloyd's and from uh, Ofcom, which is good, but not really enough on, uh, it's not it's not at the local granular level, uh, really. We don't have this on. MSOX and stuff, nowhere near that. Um, the best that I've, I'm aware of is something we do with the University of Liverpool, uh, regional level analyses based on Ofcom data. Um, so I guess my question is how do we find out more about who isn't online, uh, including who isn't online due to cost, um, and how do we ensure more people get online, uh, do so safely, uh, to increase the quantity of data we can collect uh, and ensure data works for society. 
sort it out a bit roughly. That was another great question. Thank you. And gentleman just there. Hello, I'm Eric Pilmore from Bracknell CLP. Um, basically, I'm asking the question about um, Facebook and how it's ended up so influential. That I'm not surprised to see a delegate with a whole bunch of politicians because it seems to be a part of society, almost a state in itself. But um, I find it fascinating that the pace of society is increasing. Everybody is online, and maybe opposite from what this chap was saying is that we're getting people online, but then the flow of communication and everything that goes online is inflammating every single issue that comes up. Um, and everything is somehow 10 times bigger than maybe it is in real life. Um, we're getting information and it's flowing around and everybody gets uh, some kind of view and then it turns out into some kind of social uprising or riots or something like this. Um, how can we slow the pace of this information and maybe make it uh, more less inflammatory and perhaps slow society down so it's not immediately throwing out information on everything um, sort of immediately. I feel like everything's sped up because I, I, I feel for people that aren't online because they're probably having a quite good life because they're not affected by everything that goes on, you know, like maybe they should stay offline. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just joking. There's lots of benefits to being online and connected and I think that's great. I, I think it has lots of benefits, but on the negative side, it could, could be uh, causing a lot of information unnecessarily and if, if that could be reduced somehow, um, society believe by the government or whatever um, through sort of policies on, I don't know, information flow. Maybe that's what Facebook is trying to do with the good, uh, I don't know. That's my, my question is basically to do how, with How that. do we slow things down? Yeah, that's, uh, that's another really great question. So we've got three fantastic questions there. One about um, examples beyond the pandemic and how we, we sort of normalize um, some of the benefits that we've had. Um, how do we find out more about the digitally excluded and, and whether some of that is due to cost? And that excellent question at the end about, I suppose, the pace of life and how we respond um, to those changes. Who would like to take those first? Shall I take the last question yeah. first as it was to me? Yeah, thank you, Eric, for the question. I think it is um, the, the, the feeling you describe, I think, is one that many people have, which is that things are happening so much faster online and the internet does bring people together in ways that has never happened before. I think you're absolutely right that in addition to that, producing great amounts of good for people who are able to use the internet, to use tools that have been developed by companies like Facebook or by the government to seek out information about health, to understand how to protect themselves from things like COVID, it also, of course, can have negative impacts as well. And we see those every day on Facebook as well as on all the parts of the internet. And I think tackling those, making sure that these tools are designed from the beginning as far as possible in a way that enables as much of the good as possible and reduces as much of the bad as possible is, is an essential part of what the responsibility of companies like ours is, as well as what society as a whole and these conversations can help to contribute to. Um, I think the, there's two points I just make in response to your question. One is about the impact. I think something we've touched on a bit in the discussion about the use of data by, um, by different organizations through the pandemic is the equity impact of the use of data. I think it's really important to remember that both in the collection of data and in the way that we then decide to use the insights that are gathered from that data, uh, those insights and those actions can fall prey very quickly to equity mistakes, to in, um, greater negative impacts on certain groups of society than others. 
Um, at Facebook, we have a, a recently we created a, a team at Instagram called the Equity Team, which is looking at specifically these issues, understanding how can, how might it be the case that data inadvertently imports a bias into a into a into a decision making process that then can have a negative impact. And I think that um, sort of next level beyond just what's the good and bad, but what's the sort of bad that might happen through inadvertent use of that data is something that I think we should be discussing more and, and hope to do more on. On your point about inflammation and you know how can we slow things down a bit, I think I really agree with your point. I think we do see the way that individuals are able to speak and comment so quickly on issues they feel very passionately about can lead to inflammatory remarks, to comments that people ultimately regret or, or are hurtful. We have been thinking exactly about what you say, about how do we slow that down a bit. One example is in some of our tools at Facebook and Instagram, introducing more friction into the ways people share things so that people might understand when they might be going too far. So we already use technology to find posts on Instagram or Facebook that might break our rules, be hateful or bullying uh, once they've been posted on the platform. What we started doing on Instagram is a feature whereby it's a, what we call a comment warning. So when someone is about to post a comment on a post on Instagram, if that comment looks to our systems to be quite similar to ones that have in the past been removed for being hateful or bullying or, or, or violent, we just pop up a message saying, this message looks similar to ones that we've been removed. Are you sure you want to post that? And we actually see recently, we've, we've released some figures on this, in around 50% of the times that someone sees that message, they either edit or don't post that comment. So I think just, again, bringing that awareness and that bit of pause for reflection can really help. Thank you, Richard. Um, Darren? Uh, sure, I'll take them in reverse. I think the last question is very topical. We have new laws going uh, being looked at in Parliament at the moment that's going to try to tackle some of the issues you've talked about. Uh, at the most basic level, the bits you alluded to was when information is kind of accurate and useful, for example, during the COVID pandemic, we want lots of people to see that as quickly as possible. Uh, but when maybe it's misinformation or disinformation that can be inflammatory or scare people and is maybe not based in facts and evidence, how do you kind of prevent that harm? So when we talk about online harm, so that's what, something like what we're kind of talking about. So we have laws now that are kind of be, it's going to be looking at that and thinking about how we regulate uh, platforms like Facebook and others uh, through our regulatory bodies to ensure that that is, um, uh, the, the harm of that is assessed properly and managed in an appropriate way. And there are some difficult issues in there, for example, uh, how do you regulate uh, journalists, um, some of whom may not actually be journalists, but trying to cause trouble, some of them might be journalists, but how do you make those distinctions? Um, there's the issue around democracy, you know, you should be able to, as a political candidate in an election, for example, make your point, and how do you make sure that you don't infringe on democratic freedoms? And then as an individual, you have freedom of expression, and how do you ensure that that's regulated in a fair way online, these are difficult issues, but Parliament is actually looking at them at the moment and the law will change in the next couple of years to try to tackle some of the issues that you've raised. Um, Tom, I mean, you know my views on this. I think the ONS should be collecting better data on data poverty because we can't tackle it unless we understand it properly. Uh, my frustration is the ONS works quite slowly sometimes, agreeing on new data sources, well, agreeing on which data to collect, then trying to find the data source and then actually publishing it. And my other frustration is sometimes government doesn't like to agree on what the data should be because it can highlight problems. <laughs> so uh, there's a huge debate going on at the moment about how do you measure child poverty? Uh, and there's a big debate within the Conservative Party because actually ministers don't want the definition of child poverty that was previously agreed to on a cross-party basis because breaking news, it would reveal there's a lot of child poverty in the country and that's a problem. And sometimes these things can get locked down. I hope we can make more progress on data poverty because I don't think it's as politically sensitive not that that should be infringing on child poverty, but anyway. Uh, Caitlin, your, your example is really interesting because I'm, I'm always interested in whether these kind of changes 
come from a demand from, in your circumstance, the applicant um, or the universities? Because the free school meal thing, for example, um, feels to me like a new cultural acceptance. Um, so I was a free school meals kid. I don't think UCAS collected that when I applied. I can't remember. It was a while ago now. Um, and uh, I probably would have wondered back then whether that would actually infringe my ability to have access to top two universities or not. And now the top two universities actually want to see that, and they probably weren't that interested before. We've all come to a kind of nice cultural acceptance that this is something we all care about and we should do something about it. So let's share the data. Uh, and that's nice and good and you know, well done for doing that. But I don't know how many more examples of that or how quickly that can happen in, pro in, in, in reality so that we can actually start to share those categories of data to achieve public policy priority outcomes. And trying to do that in legislation is also very slow and, and difficult. So I hope there are lots of other good examples like that. But I just wonder whether it's kind of a, um, a nice but maybe slow uh, example, if that makes uh, sense. Thanks. Yeah, um, so on the, the, the two examples I talked about, so our, our use of our kind of bringing in of a sexy standard um, around, around data collection on grants and, and social investment, that was something we've been working on for ages. Um, but we needed, the, we needed something to be unleashed as it was, and there was just a willingness for organisations to work together to, to agree that standard. Um, and that's kind of what we got from, from the pandemic. So it was more that we saw it as an opportunity and jumped on it than that, than that it was a thing that came out of, of the pandemic itself. And actually the same goes for our use of, of local economic data. I mean, that's data that I have been working with for about five years, um, but it kind of came into its own with the pandemic because we were just able to get a few little bits of, of um, grant funding because we could so clearly show that it was going to be beneficial and important and something useful to know. Um, so, so I think it just provided the opportunity for us. I'm sure there are other examples like that where it, it similarly just helped to unlock um, pieces of work that had just been really slow because there were all these institutional blockers or you know small things that just make it much harder to achieve. Um, on the the uh, the point about about data exclusion of people who are, who are not online, I think there's a couple of things I'd say about that. So one is that we typically don't work with individual level data at all. And I do think it's important to just note that you don't need to know about each individual. There's huge value in understanding places, in understanding commonalities between themes and trends. And we do a lot of work with individual organizations and understanding the organizations is typically a pretty good proxy for understanding the places that they're working in. Um, and that's always been the case, right? I think we've, we sort of have a, a tendency now to, to think in completest ways about data sets because data sets now are really, really big. We kind of think, well, we need to be able to count every single person in this room and know every single one of their reactions to every question that's being asked. But actually, you don't. You don't need to know that. You can you can get a sense from the vibe um, as much as anything. You know, there are ways in which aggregate data is still gives you a huge amount of what you need. Um, and I think that's certainly what we found on the local economic mapping that we're able to do. It really is telling us useful stuff despite the fact that we know it's only probably covering about 25% of the population. If you can, plus also then you can do data linking things. So, you know, we turn, we, we're increasingly linking that data to census data. When the new census data is out, it's going to be even more powerful because obviously so far we've been working with slightly out of date information. But to be able to look at the economic flows and to then look at what the census tells us about the makeup of the population is very powerful in itself. So I think it's, it's just important to remember that that, or to think about why it is we would want people to go online. So what's the benefit to them? Because I don't think the 
I don't think the approach myself should be that we need to be able to see them through our data. It should be that it provides some value to, to them. Um, uh, on the on the on the question about um, about Facebook and, and social media and things, I, I think I'm going to not answer on the basis that I have an opinion. I do have an opinion, but I'm not an expert, and so I feel like my opinion is as, as, as valuable as anyone else's. But I don't have anything particular to say about it. Thanks. Um, thanks for those questions. I, for me, the the common thread, especially uh, across the first two questions, is that we need to increase the practice of data ethics. Um, and for me, that is the, the key to making sure that the, uh, the change that I was talking about is going beyond that emergency mindset. And that is the, the way we make sure that we don't end up with a, a data scandal that pushes things back, that gets us to to, to, to set back. The, the, the big question in, in my mind is that we do have a tendency whenever we think about um, equity or, or ethics in, in data practices, we tend to think of it as a, solely as a privacy concern, as a, uh, a matter of privacy for the data subjects that are represented in the data that we're going to be using. And I think we need to do that, obviously, that is extremely important, but we need to go much, much beyond that. We need to understand that decisions made with data will affect people uh, who are not represented in this data. And that, that gets me to, to the question that, that Tom asked. That is that we, there, are, uh, there are swathes of people who are not represented in any, in any data, and we need to understand that. We need to understand also that um, uh, impacts can be created on people from non-personal data, and that is equally important. Uh, a, a policy that, or a policy or a service that impacts people, even if it's made purely from, I don't know, satellite data, is still having a, an impact, an ethical impact, and needs to be considered just as much and just as thoroughly as um, as, as a matter of, of privacy. And, and you know, likewise, this is why uh, things like atomic indicators. Uh, that uh, the, the ONS publishes. Um, I'm going to be I'm going to be trying to defend the ONS a little bit uh, for, for balance here. Um, the ONS and, and generally uh, statistics um, institutions do a great work of providing authoritative, trustworthy data that we can use uh, as part of, for instance, uh, fact-checking services. That that too is really important. That helps us kind of counterbalance the, the issues we've got with perhaps uh, heated. Uh, uh, ecosystems in, in social media. Uh, the 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 one thing that that that, that I would say that, that I'd like to see happen is more nuance. And as I said, you know, we need more practice of data ethics, and that should result in people saying this is hard, and we don't necessarily have the right skills. We don't know everything. It it is difficult. The the moment people say data is perfect and we can drive policy from it is when we all lose because that's when. Uh, that's when mistakes happen, that's when distrust happens. So uh, being able to say, we looked at this, it is hard, and we made the decision, for instance, to change this policy or to change this service because we considered ethics is the, is the moment that uh, we'll be in a, in a much better place. But I'm not seeing that much yet. I, you know, we, we do see sometimes uh, privacy assessments published, but not so much people saying, we considered ethics and we made a mistake, we're changing. That, that we need we need more of that to ha to happen uh, if if we want trust to grow and, and 
Theresa State. Great, thank you. If we keep them short, I think we can get another very quick round of questions. I'll also ask the panellists to say any concluding remarks that they've got based on everything we've talked about, and I'll go in the panel in reverse order to the opening. So um, we've got somebody at the back, we've got somebody towards the front, and we've got one of my IFG colleagues in the second row. Hi, um, I'm Sophie Ng. I'm a journalist at Research Fortnight. Um, I just wondered um, what the panel thought about what could be done to improve the flow and use of data for research. Um, and what lessons could be learned from the pandemic there? Thanks. Great question. Thank you. Uh, hello, I'm Elliot Jones from the Ada Lovelace Institute. I guess what I'd like to ask from any of the panelists is what they think were the biggest mistakes in data use during the pandemic, and what have we learned to not do again in either future data use in normal circumstances or emergencies? Great. Thank you. And Graham. Uh, Graham Atkins, Institute for Government. Um, a lot of you have talked about the benefits of collecting more data during the pandemic. Does anyone on the panel think there is any data that we should stop collecting as a result of the pandemic? Three fantastic questions. Thank you. So improving data for research, biggest mistakes and what we can learn from them, and any data we should stop collecting. Olivier. Whew, good question. Um, so the, 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 the first question you have, question Sophie, is, is the, the one that I'm most comfortable uh, answering. And, and, and because, well, I, I work in the field of research, but uh, the, I think the main thing I would be excited about is the fact that we are, uh, we as, as, a, as a discipline are thinking much more in, uh, uh, in the matters of data stewardship. That it's not just that you are, either you hold data and you keep it, and you keep it close to your chest or you publish it, that there is, there is massive value in having stewardship of data that is management of access, that is processing of data so that it is uh, de-risked through things like anonymization. And we've got uh, this whole notion of data institutions, that is institutionalizing the, uh, the governance of data, stewardship of data, especially in research, that is quite, um, quite exciting. And, and, and I'm seeing uh, that being done increasingly in research and adopted outside of research. So that, that would be, uh, that, that institutionalization is where I would see uh, progress being done. Um, in terms of, I'm not, I'm not going to say what not to do because I can't think of, a, of an example. But uh, Graham, your, your question, um, I, I would get back to um, a shift in perspective, getting outside of the idea that data has to be personal data. There, are, there is plenty of good work that can be done by collecting, sharing data that is either anonymized, aggregated, or just at the societal level that um, that is much, much safer and much easier to, to, to use in, in trustworthy ways. Richard. Sophie, your question about, oh, sorry, it was quite loud. Um, your, use of the, your question about use of data for research, I think it's a really crucial one. Um, Facebook, as I, I described, we have some ways that we currently try and provide more data to researchers and, and NGOs and academics, but I think there is an awful lot more that could be done, particularly from large companies like Facebook that, as I said, have access to a lot of data. There are very good reasons historically why Facebook is extremely cautious around these sorts of partnerships with researchers. Um, I, don't, I, I hear every week from people who are legitimately saying that we need to go a lot further and a lot faster to open up more sources of data, and I do hear that very loudly. There are significant constraints though around what the laws currently say about uh, use of data for research, privacy uh, controls, anonymization, differential privacy for data. And I think 
the real, what's needed for me is more discussions like these, but also between governments and civil society and companies about how to navigate those processes in a way that's safe and equitable that we've talked about. I know that the um, European Data Monitoring Observatory in the EU is currently convening some work under the GDPR to look at what sorts of new types of uh, data sharing agreements could be possible that are GDPR compliant between researchers and, and, and companies and Facebook's involved in that. I think that's essential. Something else, um, Darren mentioned the online safety bill. One of the things that the, the bill uh, envisages is a role for Ofcom, in fact, a report by Ofcom, who's going to be the future online safety regulator, on how to unlock some of these issues about sharing of data between researchers and, um, and, and, and tech platforms. And I think that work, I think, should be done immediately. Currently, it's foreseen to happen two years after the online safety bill is passed. I think there's no reason why that can't happen immediately to sort of start learning from some of the things we've discussed today. Um, uh, I won't comment on biggest mistakes, I'll leave that to others on the panel, but in terms of stopping collecting of data, again, it's not something that people would usually associate with Facebook to say that we're stopping collecting data, but I think there are a lot of changes in the way people are perceiving and understanding and sharing information on social media that are quite um, instructive for us. One way is uh, a big shift away from public social media, the sort of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter style, towards more direct messaging and private messaging, and I think we have talked at Facebook quite a lot about how we might start to encrypt further of our messaging services to ensure that more of that data is not collected uh, by us at all and kept between those who share it. Similarly, uh, there's a lot of uh, new technologies, competitors to Facebook coming up who do a lot of uh, what they call ephemeral messaging, so messages that are you know, deleted after they're shared or only last for a short period of time. I think those changes in the ways people are behaving will really inform some of the changes that should happen in my companies too. Great, thank you. Jen. Um, I, well, we openly publish our data, so we welcome all researchers <laughs> to, to, if there's anything you want to know about social investment, we, we tend to we tend to publish as much as we possibly can, and we and we also work with the um, government outcomes lab at, at Oxford to give access to international researchers to our data. So I think we do our best. Um, we don't we still don't have as much data as I would like us to have, particularly on on um, the effects of social investment, what it what it does for organisations. But what we have, we publish. Um, on the, the kind of mistakes and what we shouldn't, what we might stop collecting, I think there's a sort of merged answer to that. There, there's a, the, the biggest kind of, this also a little bit response to an earlier question about, um, about where, the, where we might, where there might be bigger uh, issues again, will, are things going to stop? Are we going to see, see a kind of reversal in the use of, in, in the good things that have happened? And I think for me, one of the, one of the things that comes up weekly at the moment is a kind of definitional question around um, particularly the diversity data that we're collecting. And the, there's a, this is sort of gonna get a little bit technical. <laughs> there's a bit of a, a question here about what it is that we're using that data for. And that that's often, so it's partly an ethical question, but it's also partly just a question of analytics. What is it that we're trying to work out? So I'm very clear that when we're collecting that diversity data at SIB, what we are trying to find out is where there are barriers in the system that mean that our dispersal of money is inequitable. What we're not trying to do is to work out how people identify into particular categories. And those are very different things. And there's a big push within um, my sector in particular to ask questions about the use of the, the acronym DAME to ask whether or not that really captures people's sense of self. 
and my, I, I sort of have some issues with what that then does, because if you seek to then disaggregate, sort of to your point about what you can gain from aggregated data, from that aggregate data, we can see that there is a consistent issue in grant making and social investment in this country that means that kind of regardless of the specific identification that you might have, it is enough to be from some ethnic minority for your access to grants and social investment to be less equitable, to be less good. Well, you'll get less less access, you'll get less money, um, you'll typically ask for less money as well, um, and and your your ability to retain it for, for the long term will, will be lower as well. So there's a set of barriers around that. If you start moving away from that aggregate metric towards something which disaggregates and looks at individual identification, we could lose the power of that aggregated metric. And particularly as well, and I think this is the bit that worries me the most, is around the, so we tend to ask for a leadership question and we tend to ask for 51% leadership of a, of a particular um, diverse group. And, that, uh, and there's been a big push to move that up to 75% because for, because for individual people, they perceive a woman-led organization, for instance, to be an organization that is led by 75% women. The difficulty with that is that your self-perception as a group is not the same as social is a social perception. So it could be sufficient to have 51% of women for the barriers to be erected, for it to be less likely for you to get money. So your actual your your understanding of inequality becomes less deep and less clear. So you you, you could miss out on a whole lot of inequality that's happening. So those are those are the places where I'm kind of worried about um, the kinds of questions we're asking, the potential mistakes we might make, the things that we might miss. Um, and they tend to come from really good motives. They come from, from people trying very hard to think about metrics and definitions. But they can lead to problems. And I think that's, you know, you can have big data sets, but if you don't sort out the definitions and think about the ethics and think about the application of that data, um, that you're, yeah, you're still, you're still not necessarily collecting the right thing or finding out the right thing. Um, yeah, great. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> Darren. Thanks. The question on data minimization is interesting because, of course, my criticism from a Whitehall perspective, is that we don't actually know what we want to do. And so, therefore, you don't know whether you're collecting too much or not. And I think there's a, um, a shortfall in expertise in the civil service uh, in doing this work. I think there's a problem in terms of how different departments work with each other on a cross-departmental basis. And I do think there's a problem where, on issues around national security, we make too many things secret and kind of block it from being shared with other people. Um, and I don't think we can answer the question, uh, are we collecting too much or are we collecting the wrong things until we know actually what we're trying to, trying to do with it. And I would, I would rather that we kind of, that officials and ministers kind of try to grapple with that first in order to then understand the, the second question. The research data question is really interesting. I was going to point to the Ofcom work that we're tasking them with through the online safety bill. It's very easy for politicians to say, Facebook should just hand over all of its data uh, so that researchers can research it. Um, and tell us everything. And we should put that on the face of the bill uh, so that there's no, there's no discussion. Um, that's not how it works in practice, right? And there are some really difficult questions there around governance and checks and balances and privacy and other protections and, you know, perfectly legitimate commercial sensitivities as well uh, that do need to be worked out. And I think that's ultimately why ministers have given the job to Ofcom. And I think that piece of work will be, will be very interesting in answering that question around research data. And on the biggest mistake, I just go back to kind of what I said at the beginning, really, where it's easy to fall into two camps, either the, either the kind of tech evangelism or the tech desperation. I think we shouldn't fall into either of those, and some people did fall into those, and I think that was a mistake in the pandemic. We should recognize that tech is 
an aid uh, can optimize and improve what we're trying to do. It isn't by and of itself the answer, but we're not going to be as good as we can be if we don't use it. Excellent. Thank you. Um, a great note I want you to end. Apart from, I've got some very quick parish notices. Um, the first is, um, before you run off to your next event, uh, we've got another Institute for Government event in this room at three o'clock with the Health Foundation um, looking after the pandemic, the long-term health and social care challenges with Shadow Minister Justin Madders, Nita Charlesworth from the Health Foundation, Sarah Neville from the FT, as well as Gemma Tetlow and Graham Atkins from the IFG. Um, if any of you should be uh, heading to Conservative Conference next week, there's a full IFG programme of events there. Do check the website. If you're interested in data, we have another virtual Data Bytes event next Wednesday uh, from the Institute for Governments. Do check that out. Of course, if you're interested in data, do also look at the government's current consultation on data protection. A lot of the issues that we've talked about today are very much in there. All that remains for me to say, three very big thank yous. First of all, to all of you uh, for coming along and some brilliant questions. Second to Facebook for allowing us to put this event on today. Very thank you to them for their support. And join me in a huge round of applause for our fantastic speakers today. They've been a great panel, lots of insight. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you.